Hi, everyone, and welcome to All Go First. My name is Jessica Minhas, and I'm your host and the founder of All Go First. We are a mental health nonprofit. We are passionate about supporting you on your journey of hope, healing, and freedom. This episode is a recording of a panel I moderated last week on domestic violence in the time of COVID with the nonprofit Reveal Beauty. Elena Aguilera, Community Education Training Specialist of Safe Austin in Austin, Texas. Asa Scott, she is the Associate Director of Clinical Services at the Bowery Mission in New York City. And Anna Doan, she is the founder of Reveal Beauty. They all join us in this conversation. We talk about what is domestic violence, like actually. How do you know if you're in a situation of intimate partner violence? The misconceptions around victims and survivors, how to talk about domestic violence, how to support a loved one who may be in that type of a situation, resources, and I think most importantly maybe for us as allies in the community is how to take care of ourselves while taking care of others. It was a really, really fascinating episode. There was actually a lot of surprising things I didn't know about domestic violence that I think were really uplifting in a way. A lot of things that people are doing for the recovery of victims. I am so excited for you to hear. I would love, love, love to hear what you think. So let's get started. My name is Jessica, and I'm a big fan of Reveal. I'm a journalist and also the founder of I'll Go First, and we provide mental health access. We use storytelling to help people put words to their experiences. We also have a platform on I'llGoFirst.com that provides access to over 350,000 social services in every zip code in the United States. So please, please check it out. I'm really excited to be a part of this because I'm dear friends with Anna Doan. She obviously, she's the hero tonight, founder of Reveal Beauty. And I've always been so curious about why she started Reveal. And 15 years ago, you were in your 20s. Um, I mean, you're still in your 20s, obviously. <laughs> so <laughs> things were a little different back then. You were in New York City. Why did you feel this is the moment that we really need to be able to have this conversation and this space for women? I would say maybe just taking a step back for any New Yorker that comes to New York, you have big dreams. You want to make a difference and you want to know where your place in the world was. For me, um, it was Reveal. It was a passion for women with an equal passion for fashion and beauty. And then through a group of individuals through uh, our church at the time, it was creating these amazing experiences to provide makeover events for survivors of domestic violence and sex trafficking. What was a small event, you know, was five different friends coming together at someone's office, giving five or seven women from a, a partner shelter, a makeover event, it became and exploded to be something so big. Um, so it really ignited my heart for uh, fashion, beauty, but really just women empowering them, giving them hope and creating these experiences, these Cinderella-like experiences that remind women that they do have a new narrative, that there is hope, there is a new story that they can adopt um, to empower them in where they are. I love that. I think that we can all learn something from that. And Asa, Miss Asa Scott over here, you are the Associate Director of Clinical Services at the Bowery Mission. You are our direct service provider. So you get a real inside look at why these kind of conversations and beauty and redemption are so important. I know Bowery Missions is also a faith-based organization. So this is really kind of core to the way that you work with young people. We also had a chance to, sp to speak before this event and what was so fun was just how inspirational your story is and how much your story influences the work you do how does that come to life for you 
Oh, thank you so much, Jess. And uh, thank you, Anna, again, for just the work that you do with Reveal. And thank you so much for just this platform and highlighting the work that the Bowery Mission does. We really, we, we, we take pride in our partner and the partner relationships that we have with, you know, folks just, at, just like Reveal, as you stated so eloquently, it's about the connection with women and giving them a chance to feel very empowered, giving them these Cinderella-like um, experiences. It does so much for their self-worth, their validation, and their self-esteem in spaces and create places for them where they have always, they, they felt disenfranchised. They, you know, create spaces for them where they have felt abused and battered and sort of beaten up in the world. And just a chance to put on some lipstick, a chance to just feel beautiful and to see themselves, it reveals that inner quality on the inside that is just so wonderful and so important for self-determination. Those are just the reasons why I do what I do. It's the idea that everyone has an ingrained and ingiven God-given right and value within themselves and to create opportunities that allow women and allow people even to reveal those qualities about themselves is one of my biggest passion. Everyone always calls me a big cheerleader. <laughs> one of the things that I always like to do. I can feel that. <laughs> is to just have someone look into themselves and just see that quality that you're valued, you're here on purpose, created with a purpose and for a purpose. And, and so many times for survivors of domestic violence, it's that lack of purpose and self-worth mm, that becomes yeah. taken away from them by the abuser. That's what abusers do. They unequip you from your own value and they, and they completely disempower you in spaces that are free imaginary or real threats to safety that causes you to crumble. And so the idea of a, of a program such as Reveal and an organization such as Reveal that allows those spaces to occur is something that I really, really hold dear. Yeah, I love that you're kind of talking about the imagined perceived component of mm -hmm. abuse and also the real physical space. And obviously, we're talking right now in a time of COVID, this panel really is focused on how domestic violence has shifted because of COVID and the pandemic, how shelter in place is sort of affecting it. Something that was really surprising to me was how you explained the nature of perpetrators and how they're adapting their behaviors. Mm -hmm. What does domestic violence even look like and how has that changed now that COVID is here and with us? Yeah, so intimate partner violence and domestic violence, it's all about power, control, and the, the exertion of power and control of a partner over um, another individual. And the way that people exert those that power changes differently in different experiences and different times. With coronavirus and the shelter in place laws, it created a conflict of so many variables that made the victim feel so much more isolated, so much more kind of uh, closeted and, and, and constrained and surrounded in a space that was really, really unfanable. Imagine you are forced to stay at home, completely cut off, completely isolated with the one person who might be the biggest threat to your safety. And that's what this current pandemic caused. 
It caused victims to be stuck at home. It caused them to be cut off from support services and essential services that they actually needed. There was a period of time that you were not allowed to go out of your house, even go to your therapist, which was your safe space, or go see family members because of risk of cross-contamination. You know, go to school or go to work to have a break because Sometimes the abuse is not just physical, it's psychological. It's psychological and so um, and so pervasive that you're locked mm-hmm. at home, you're locked alone with someone and you can't even leave. So imagine that that became your entire reality for not just a week, not just two weeks, not for months, but years, not years, it feels like years, but months. It does <laughs> months feel like years. <laughs> this is like the longest, shortest year I think I've experienced it, it. It's so it's so true. But the the other part to me that was really 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 um, interesting is that one of the things one of my clients actually said to me was just not just the fact of just being alone with um, with her abuser, but it also felt that her whole nexus of control and nexus of power mm. was taken away from her. Not only did she have her abuser telling her what to do, she also had the government telling her what to do. She also had other people making decisions and controlling and restricting her travel in a way that became, in a sense, also traumatizing. And there was this re-victimization and re-experiencing of trauma that occurred in so many facets. You know, you're being told you can't do this, that you have to wear a mask, that you have to do all of these things. So it's like compounded because that's already happening with the abuser. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the first things that we learn as therapists when we're working with a survivor of abuse is that we want to affirm their own ability to make their decision, even if we don't agree with their decision. And think about how that feels even for someone when we're telling them, wear a mask because that's for your own safety. But I put on a mask and I can't breathe. I put on a mask and I feel like I can't even scream for help. And how that can also be be traumatizing for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that becomes the, the, the work of kind of working through those traumas with some of the survivors that we work with. How, how to do those things in a safe and effective way where at first, you know, we live in a congregate setting. So all of our clients have to wear a mask to protect them from each other, staff from clients, clients from staff. But at the same time, to do that in a very trauma-informed way that doesn't allow them to feel re-triggered or re-traumatized again is, is one of our biggest struggles. Wow. Mm-hmm. I love that you are doing this work because I know that you get it from your own journey. And that I just I just value that and I admire you so much for that. You talked about some of the misconceptions around domestic violence survivors that are coming into the homeless shelter. And one thing that I thought was so powerful to your point about how we're stuck at home right now with the abuser is that one of the clients that you recently saw was somebody who was a professor. Yeah. One of the things that I love to share with folks when I talk about experiences, clients and guests who are homeless, is that there is no face of what looks like a homeless person. There is no specific demographic that would be the most vulnerable or the most at risk for someone who is homeless. And especially during a pandemic, it reveals it even more because it could be a situational thing that happens. You lose your job and living in New York, everyone's rent is at least 60% of their income. Wow, yeah. If you lose your job, there's a potential that you can only go one month or two months 
without that same income, that same amount of money coming in before you find yourself in a, in a, in a situation. So the diversity of folks that we serve is so interesting. I have a professor, for example, who works at you know um, a really prestigious university, but his classes were cut short. And this is a male. And this is a male. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing that up. And his yeah. income was teetering on the brink of a few, you know, a few months or there because he was also a writer. And so he does, you know, many different things. And it was just so interesting that just the just, just that little change in one part of his life caused the cascading effect that led to homelessness as well. And I like to talk about just also the diversity of folks who are also survivors of abuse. I think the CDC actually gave a really good statistic the other day for me, where it was that nearly one in four women are victims of, of physical violence by an intimate partner, but also one in seven men are also um, victims of intimate partner violence. Yeah. I also like to talk about what happens with men as well, because mm. there's so many times that we kind of, stigmatize the power and control relationship and create an idea that victims are always women and abusers are always men. But I think once we challenge that, there's also a really good way that we can uh, kind of work that we can do where we can also empower women to see that their power is not always endemic in their sex. So just because you're a woman doesn't mean- Yeah, wow, wow. I'm just like- (laughs) <laughs> and it's wow. so important for us to always make sure we're challenging those narratives and not always using that pronoun that all victims are female and all abusers are men. I'm just like, yes, yes. What One thing that you kind of corrected me on just now, and I'm so glad you did, mm-hmm. is the language we use around when we refer to victims. Mm-hmm. What is the best way, empowering language that we can use when we talk about this issue, mm-hmm. when we talk about survivors and victims? That's such a good question. The importance of language is based on the person whom the language is being used and how language actually affects that person. My mom is a, is a linguistic expert. <laughs> She's really great of always correcting me about language, about language usage. But the most impactful things that I have found is that how we refer to someone only impacts them based on their interpretation of that word. So in certain cultures, calling someone a victim can actually be very like, okay, I I was a victim because I was hurt and abused by this person. And that was important for me to see. And it was clarifying because maybe they have been very stigmatized by the constant kind of barrage of society that they have existed in, where they didn't even notice that what they were living in was actually abusive. But in other cultures, saying to someone that they're a victim can be disempowering and they want to actually use the language of survivor because it creates an opportunity for them to say, this is what I'm coming through and I'm not going to be labeled by what my abuser did. I think Simone Biles actually wrote a really good op-ed about that. She's amazing. When she spoke about not wanting to be labeled by the action of her abuser, but just labeled by who she is as a person. And so it's really important, I think, when, when we use language to kind of ask the person who the language is being directed to, what agency that they would like to have empowered for them, and kind of go through that narrative, because what may be true for me might not be appropriate for someone else. 
Yeah, that is such wise words. I always double back because I'm not sure how to have that conversation. And I want to make sure that I'm honoring them. And I'm a sexual assault survivor as well. And I I also go back and forth with, do I want to be called a victim or a survivor? What is the best way to approach that? Ileana, you have joined us. I'm so happy to see you. Hi. Ileana is with Safe Austin. She is an educator and she is one of the partner organizations with Anna. Ileana, we're kind of just on the front end of exploring domestic violence in the time of COVID. As an educator, when does somebody know that they're in a domestic violence situation? Well, I think um, that is something really hard for people to put it verbally like that, right? To call themselves, I'm a survivor or I am suffering from domestic violence and use those terms necessarily. I think it takes time for somebody to say, you know, I am a victim or I am a survivor. What happens with domestic violence is in many cases, it's a spectrum of behaviors that start being very subtle. Afterwards, when we look back at our process, we know, oh, that was a red flag. Now I see it. Now I see what was happening. But when we are in the situation, it's really hard to just pinpoint like one behavior or another and to realize that that person is trying to control. Uh, I think the complexity of domestic violence is that there's so many things mixed together. And then there is the control that the person is using. But at the same time, there could be love, there could be fear, there are threats, there are so many emotions, mm, yeah. right? So it's really hard to identify a moment when someone Somebody says, okay, I am being a victim. I need help. It usually takes a lot of time. It takes escalating in this spectrum of behaviors, right? Like getting worse. Uh, sometimes until we experience like really the integrity or the safety of ourselves at risk, that's when we can like sometimes say, okay, I need help or I need to escape this situation. But it takes, it, it's, it's usually, it could be years in a relationship, not always, but, but it could be. So we were talking a little bit about how things have shifted. The numbers are going up for calls into your hotlines, but then they're also not because people might not have the opportunity to call in like they had before COVID because they don't have a chance to get away from their abuser. Can you set the scene a little bit for us? I think when the quarantine started, we saw an increase on contacts to our safe line, confirming what we know, not everybody is safe at home. But after that, when shelter in place became mandatory and people were with the person that was using violence 24 seven, then we saw a decrease in contact. Yeah. And we knew it's not because it's not happening. It's just because people are not having an opportunity to reach out, to seek help, because the person using violence is with them all the time. And it's monitoring, it's controlling, and people are not finding a time or, or a chance to make a phone call or to get into our website and chat with us or things like that. Number, like now, I think we are in quarantine list, but we are, you know, business are open, like people are going in and out. So obviously, like contacts have increased as more freedom and opportunity people have. And unfortunately, the context to our safe line in this time of the year compared with la last year is 25% higher. Between April and June, we had 20% increase. And between June and now is 25% compared with 2019. But also wow. the severity 
of the reports. That's yes, that. Yeah. That's what is also very alarming. It's not just the fact that it's more calls or more contacts. It's also the fact that people are experiencing more severe incidents of abuse. And Asa, I'm curious from your perspective, since you're providing direct services, what are you experiencing when you speak with victims about what's happened to them? I echo what Ileana shared about the increase in the calls, especially during uh, the quarantine. Our women's programs, for example, are almost at capacity right now in our intake department and um, our short-term programs because of an increased demand for shelter. We're getting a lot of calls for folks who are choosing to um, to leave their abusers and seek shelter in spaces that they feel safe in because of the intensity of the abuse that has been that has been occurring. I think the the level of mental anguish has heightened because they are um, kind of closeted with their abuser. A lot of the calls that we've had is a lot of women or even you know men you know when they're calling in to tell us why they have the impetus to leave, they share with us is that it's because the person is, the, the perpetrator is now more frustrated. The perpetrator is now more angry. The perpetrator is now kind of feeling different strains or stressors in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they're using the survivor as sort of the release of that, uh, that anguish and, and that abuse. And they're kind of using them as the outlet for it. And that has actually caused like the, the heightened of conflicts both people are now home all the time. And that level of kind of, you know, of, of just kind of being under one roof has, has reached a boiling point. There's also just an issue of control. Really interesting statistic that I found out was that most of the women who have left their male abusers um, that have chosen to come into our programs, they were the ones who were working and were the breadwinner. A lot of women do frontline work and essential services work. And less of their jobs have been impacted because of COVID, because there's a demand for essential workers. So it's now the women who are going out and working. So now there's a flip of the script in in those types of relationships where the women is bringing in more money, but now the abusers is feeling very frustrated about that fact that the woman is actually working and that's creating a power imbalance and a way that they exert power back in the relationship is through actions of control, through actions of violence, and through actions of being just very psychologically and physically abusive. Wow. I I know that COVID is affecting all of us and this is so helpful to kind of unpack and kind of visualize how just how intense it's becoming for survivors. Ileana, what are you kind of experiencing in Austin? Similar, what uh, what as I was saying is at SAFE, we actually had to open additional space for shelter and we were able to receive uh, financial support. And now we have a what used to be a hotel in Austin. It's a temporary remote shelter for uh, Yes. Wow. So, so the demand and decrease and the need because the way that the shelter works for safe is based on 
the level of risk. So when somebody contacts us and has to be in, a, in our wait list, it's not in chronological order, but it's based on an assessment of risk. So it, the, again, the severity has been so high, like just death threats and other incidents with a lot of violence mm-hmm. that we needed to open additional space. I'm hearing this and it's so intense and I'm even just feeling helpless hearing it. How do we even support somebody who's going through this? I think that it might sound simplistic, but I think it's the first step and is reconnecting with people, reaching out to establish some some sort of connection and contact because with COVID, that's what we have lost. Isolating somebody is a strategy, is a tactic of domestic violence to start with. The person who chooses to abuse would use, trying to isolate somebody. But now the pandemic has given even more excuse to isolate somebody. And we have lost connection with a lot of people. The opportunity for co-workers and other members of our community to say, hey, are you okay? I can see that something is going on and just have that opportunity to check now that we have been so disconnected and, and physically distant from each other. Uh, it's just hard. It's really hard to identify when somebody might be happening, uh, might be going through something or when something is happening in a family. So I always said, call people, uh, send an email, a text message, whatever you can with any excuse. The good thing about COVID is now we can ask people, hey, how are you? Is everything okay? That before maybe when you saw indicators of domestic violence, you were not sure if you could ask that. Now we know that very likely between COVID and the statistics, unfortunately, of domestic violence, you could ask that and be just checking often. And when, when somebody tells you that something is happening, of course, believe that and said, do you need help? How can I help? And another thing I always said is to know that when you ask that question, that other person that is going through abuse might be starting to rely on that help that you're offering. So if you offer minute and if you commit that you're going to help, you could be part of the security plan for that person, the safety plan. So just make sure that whatever you offer, you you try to really be there for that person, knowing that they could reach out to you, not in the best moment for you. It could be the middle of the night or it could be when you're working, but that's when the survivor is finding a window, an opportunity to talk to you. So just be aware of that. That's really wise. Asa, what are some resources that we can offer? Yeah, I think I think what Eliana shared are just really good first steps, being concrete and being present in someone's life, ensuring there's a space to avoid uh, survivors from feeling isolated. But I think on a broader sense as a community, we have to just make sure that we have services and mm-hmm. and operate yeah. uh, and, and create space uh, as, as voices of advocacy for just uh, prioritizing services such as these. I think one of the biggest things that has been highlighted during the, the coronavirus pandemic is just where services for folks who are disenfranchised, such as folks who are homeless, uh, survivors of abuse, a lot of these social services programs took the hit as part of expendable expenses by government officials because these were things that were easily diverted in order to fund other necessary products or policies. So I think there needs to be a broader community discussion about where our priorities actually lie 
and how we can prioritize these types of services to avoid creating a bigger problem for someone who is struggling with these issues. Asa, I know you're doing really important work on the recovery side with survivors and You had mentioned that there's actually kind of something beneficial happening because survivors are able to be at the shelter 24-7, and when they are applying for jobs, they don't have to be in person. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of sort of teleworking and Mm -hmm. confidence? Absolutely. And one of the most amazing things that have happened during uh, the pandemic was uh, we had campaign that allowed for donations of tablets to allow for like virtual interviews, virtual telemarketing kind of stuff for clients and telehealth opportunities where uh, women and men can do their interviews for jobs virtually, as well as they can speak to their doctors and their therapists um, and psychiatrists online. A really interesting unintended consequence that happened and as a result of doing virtual um, interviews their confidence actually improved because uh, a lot of times just the, the idea of just traveling from one location to another, when you're being stalked, when you're being tracked or, um, or had issues where your abuser is following you or having confrontations because you're going to different places or running into a, um, a person on a train and having one of those conversations of like, oh, where you're going? Why are you on this side of of Manhattan when you live over here and and having your whereabouts be notified, the fact that they were stationary in-house and be able to seek jobs and actually be employed and do virtual jobs has been such a relief for a lot of the survivors because of, of, of having that fear alleviated from them. And that's been so interesting for me for me to watch. There's also some instances where folks have been nervous about meeting others of, of an opposite sex. So sometimes if a, if a woman, for example, might have been in a very violent or traumatic physical um, uh, relationship, just having a virtual session with a male creates a level of exposure therapy where it's normalized in a way it's healthy, where it's normalized in a way of what's appropriate and it destigmatizes that encounter so that the next time that she meets that individual, she's not triggered from the onset because she already has a relationship because it's now being done virtually. One of my favorite quotes, oh my gosh, I have so many favorite quotes from you, (laughs) is you said that they're allowed to show their authentic self. I think that's so gorgeous and something to really celebrate that there are glimmers of hope that are kind of unintended consequences of of COVID in, in a time such as this. Ladies, let's be real. What if somebody doesn't want your help? Like, what do you do? And I'm bringing this up because I get asked this question a lot from people like, what do I, what do I do if my friend doesn't want help? And of course, uh, everything in me, especially as a sexual assault uh, survivor is like, Mm. you got to fight for that justice, but boundaries are so important. How do we take care of ourselves when we love somebody that's going through stuff that's really hard? Yeah. Boundaries are super important. The first thing that I've learned in this field is that you can't give what you don't have. Anything that we give in excess of ourselves become a harm to ourselves, a harm to our soul. So if someone is coming wait, wait, wait. to you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I need to hear that one more time. <laughs> Whenever we give of ourselves in excess of what we have, we are basically committing a crime to our soul. Dead. 
And it's so important. So good. So important for us to recognize that. But first, we have to do no harm to ourselves before we're able to help someone else. So if a friend or whoever it is that's coming to you and they're draining and depleting your resources and just they're active not following your directions or your guidance, you can't teach them to empower themselves if you're not feeling empowered in setting boundaries for yourself. And so it starts with being kind to yourself. It starts with healing yourself, but kindly and decently saying to that person, look, I cannot participate in this anymore with you because I need to take care of myself. I mm-hmm. wish you well when you're ready for help or you, you, you need help, you're, you can come back to me and I'm willing to do so, but I can't give you what it is I don't have. And maybe what you don't have is the patience. Maybe what you don't have is the tolerance. Maybe what you don't have is the empathy and not having empathy for someone in the situation that they're going through can actually harm them more mm. by you just engaging them than if you actually let them go. Mm, that is so true. That is so uh, true. The burnout part as well, vicarious trauma. Yeah, go ahead. I, I would Sorry, add to that, that it is what you were saying, not giving what you have or what you don't have, but also understanding that when we're talking about somebody who is suffering from domestic violence, is somebody who has been experiencing a relationship with another person wants to control them, right? Mm-hmm. And if we come thinking, I know what I need, I know what I, I think that I know what you need, I'm replicating that pattern of behavior. So we have to be very careful with that. At SAFE, we always said each person, each survivor is the expert of their own life. And we only see it from the outside. And as much- I need to, I need to hear you say that one more time. That is so good. <laughs> each person is the expert of their own life, right? So you are in a relationship and only you can understand all the things that are happening. I see a piece of that and my desire to help should be communicated to you. Like if you need my help, let me know. Can I help you? But you have to be the one that is in control because otherwise I'm just harming you in the same way that the person that is choosing to abuse you. So you have to decide if I can help you or not, if you need the help when and how, and we can communicate about if that's feasible, but you have to guide your own process. Otherwise you are not being really treated as a survivor that is not trauma-informed. So as a friend, uh, you have to do the same. As a loved one, you have to do the same and allow and respect the other person to guide their own process to healing or to surviving or whatever they are in that moment by allowing them to make their own decisions and never thinking that you understand better and that you know better and that you know what they need because mm, you don't. That's so good. Yeah. I'm so glad we're covering that part because that is that's a really hard tension mm-hmm. to manage for any of us. Anna, there have been some really beautiful stories that have come out of these last 15 years. And one in particular that comes to mind is the story of Precious. When did you realize that Reveal Beauty was really accomplishing what it set out to do? Oh man, there's so many moments. I've been doing this for 15 years and it doesn't get old. I would say every year gets better and better and I'm always in tears because I'm so inspired. I think with Precious's story, that that took it to another level for me. Uh, When I first met Precious, she came as a survivor with one of the shelter partners that we had. We host a, a huge annual makeover event. It's like 
fashion week on steroids. And we have, you know, almost 100 women, maybe a little more than 100 women at the time. And we have industry experts in fashion, beauty, skincare, hair, everything, just the whole nine yards. And Precious was getting ready for a job interview. And I believe she might have been out, uh, was at a homeless shelter at the time. And she was just dressed up, just so beautiful. And she was like, I am the woman in my dreams right now. And I can't believe it. She was in awe. And we were in awe of how she was in awe. And um, I would say it's just those moments when a survivor starts seeing themselves as they truly are. It's someone that's beautiful, worthy, celebrated, and has such a bright future and hope in front of them. And they're willing to take it by the horns. And then it just re- you know, reaffirms why we real matters, what we do, what we do, and what our purpose is. And I would say another memory of Precious is the following year, we actually asked her, Precious, you know, we actually kept in touch with her. She kept in touch with us. And then we invited her to be a volunteer. So not only was she empowered the year before as a survivor, we actually empowered her to empower other survivors with her story. And so it was a full circle dream come true of Precious coming in, empowered in these hopeful, beautiful Cinderella experiences, and then being part of that story and creating that narrative with other survivors who she can identify with. That's amazing. I would love to hear from each one of you. Ileana, maybe you can go first. What are you hopeful for? One of my hopes is that survivors keep finding their voices and that we feel that we can share our experiences because I think there is a huge power in just being able to to share with others. One of the big problems I think of child abuse and sexual abuse and domestic violence is that many times survivors believe that is our fault and that we keep it as a secret. So there is a lot of help out there and there is always going to be also the possibility of having a loved one or somebody who wants to help but many times the fact that there is victim blaming or shame or like harmful questions we don't we don't say anything right and and we keep it to ourselves so i think that with the me too movement and with these kind of events and communication and wonderful organizations like the reveal beauty efforts where we are uh, just sharing our experiences i think that's very empowering and that's just you know, just fuel to a machine that hopefully will never stop and we just keep getting speed and speed. And that's my hope that as it goes, it just grows bigger and it just helps help us to connect and allows opportunities for healing. Amazing. Yeah. And you're doing such important work to equip people. And we didn't get a chance to cover this, <laughs> but Ileana's story is really quite cool because she was doing direct services like you were, Asa, and then she moved over to the prevention side because she wanted to be a part of that component of the journey. So I respect you so much. Thank, Thank you so you. much for the work you do. Asa, um, yeah, what are you hopeful for? I'm hopeful that because of everything that we're experiencing, you know, within the pandemic and just this year, everyone has a shared sense of empathy empathy that sort of forces you into action that we recognize that our neighbor's needs are mirrored in our own and I think as long as we kind of start thinking about life like that we're Mm -hmm. actually going to be framed and more empowered to do actions that we can help our neighbor because we see ourselves within our neighbor one of the hardest parts of doing this job and being an advocate 
for homeless um, individuals, for victims of survivors of domestic violence, of, of folks who are um, struggling with addictions, or all of the other ills of society, is that people don't ever see themselves in those individuals. It's so easy to put a, a label of otherness or to put a label of that's not me, or I'm exempt from that condition in a certain way. And when we kind of think about it, that we are exempt from that, it causes us to have collective apathy. It causes us to have collective, you know, kind of not, not me, I don't want to see it, not in my backyard. And the one thing that I that I'm actually kind of happy that the pandemic has done, it sort of revealed this shared togetherness that we're all feeling those pains, all feeling the constrictions, and all sort of recognizing that if we don't get through this together, it can actually become a bigger problem that can affect us all in the same way. And so that's that's just my, my hope is that we all can see our pain or we can all see our hurt, we can all see our desires and our vulnerability reflected in that of our neighbor and that triggers us into action. Yeah, that just makes me think of how, you know, trauma can be passed on, but so can hope. Yeah. Anna, what are you... By the way. (laughs) Say it again. That's a quote, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Thanks. Write that down, everyone watching. Um, Actually, I can't take full credit for it. I think I saw on TikTok by another group of trauma relationship counselors, Mm -hmm. but I did adapt it just a tiny bit. So I guess you could. I don't know. Anyway, Anna, (laughs) what are you hopeful for? Uh, what am I hopeful for? You know, my hope, and, and this has always been in the beginning, my hope is that all survivors, all women can feel empowered, but it starts with having hope and knowing that they're loved and worthy. Um, mm-hmm. So we can w- remove any powerlessness, whether it's in the language, whether it's in misconceptions of the situation, any way within our power that we can reinforce empowerment. That is my hope that we can do that, be aware and be equipped as individuals, as a society, as a community. But the more we can help empower those around us, I think that that is just what I would love to see. Well, you you guys are all doing it. Thank you so much for all the hard work you do. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Those of you who are watching on Facebook Live, those of you who are joining us with the Zoom link. Thank you from the deepest deepest part of my soul to the three of you for the for the work you're doing and for giving us your time tonight likewise thank you jess thank thanks you. everyone thank we'll you so you much Jessica. Time. great job moderating oh, thanks <laughs> thank you for having us bye thanks everyone bye i appreciate everyone's time I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.I'll We'll see you next time.